Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Anna Goulding, Senior Research Associate at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, and a scholar of art, identity, aging, and community. Anna introduces us to Eleanor Ostrom, her theorization of co-production, and the potential of the term to be weakened through popularization and misapplication. Anna illustrates the methodological value and challenges of co-production through reflecting on her own efforts at putting the theory into practice. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So we are here today to talk about Eleanor Ostrom. And I suppose it's worth mentioning that uh, Eleanor Ostrom is the first Nobel Prize winner that we're going to discuss in the podcast. She's also the first political economist to be discussed in the podcast. Actually, I don't think I've talked about an economist or a political scientist before, so this is going to be exciting. And she's also the first person that I had never heard of before. So you emailed me. I had no idea who she was. So this is exciting. So Maybe start us off by just giving us an introduction to who Eleanor Ostrom is or what she's known for. So you, you summarized it really well. She's a political economist um, at Indiana University. She was born in the 1930s and died in 2012. As you say, she won the Nobel Prize. She's really known for her work on co-production um, and her idea of the commons, so publicly owned and controlled resources. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit what is co-production? I know it's one of those terms that is kind of thrown around and I've heard, but what do we actually mean by that? Yeah, so co-production, as Ostrom sees it, it's citizens playing an active role in producing public goods and services of consequence to them. So things that, that matter to them. As you say, it's a popular term. It's, it's probably poorly understood, probably misapplied, perhaps become a bit weakened. And, and we see it as this emancipatory buzzword, but we kind of question whether it really is transferring power to ordinary people. It's not also always a positive thing either. It's often written about in, as a blanket good, but actually can tip into vigilantism. And uh, I think really what's great about Elna Ostrom's um, interpretation of co-production is that she argues that complexity isn't chaos. And this is really useful when we're researching it, because what you see on the ground doesn't necessarily match with the theory. Okay, so one of the points that you made there that I think is really interesting is in the popularization of the term sometimes the concept has become weakened. So what would it look like for this idea of co-production to be weakened? How would that play out? Yeah, so I suppose I'd like to sort of look at how it's used in academia. Co-production, when it's it can often just be done very superficially. Um, what you actually have is often uh, you have a funder who has some money and they, they go to community members, they put a call out and the first group that comes to the door, they, they, they have a focus group and then they basically get them to agree with the idea that they had already put forward using very short time frames, not really engaging with the whole community. I think that's where co-production is misapplied. And I suppose often what we're actually talking about is co-design or co-management, which is valuable in itself, but it's not as emancipatory as we claim it to be. Okay, so it really can take the form of, you know, this is a box to check off. I spoke to people in the community. Here's the idea that we were already running with, uh, end of story. And that's, that's one of the dangers of it. Absolutely. And how sustainable is it ultimately? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So as a researcher, if you go into the field, you have this shallow or anyone going into the field, having the shallow engagement, leaving, then the community actually hasn't been truly empowered. You're just leaving a space now that, that you've gone away. Absolutely. So do you get a sense that Eleanor Ostrom is widely read in sociology or uh, the surrounding disciplines? And 
I have a personal reason for asking that simply because I had not heard of her before. And I don't know if that's my blind spot or if it's more just that those disciplinary walls are pretty strong. No, well, me neither. I, I hadn't heard of her at all either. Um, no, I mean, she's very much read in economics, organisational theory, political science, public administration, those kind of things. I mean, I would say that co-production is used widely, in, certainly in every social sciences grant application I've ever reviewed, um, says it's co-produced. Uh, and I think we're overlooking something here in sociology because if we're looking at social relationships and interactions, how we maintain social order, how social change comes about, it's important to look at how we deliver services and how ordinary people can shape this. I suppose as well, also because it's very applied sociology, it's similar to that split that occurred in the 1920s when social work split from sociology and in the same way that that kind of branch of social work was theorized I think co-production also fails in that way. So how did you end up finding your work or when did you first encounter it? Yeah, so I had always just felt like I had been intuitively doing co-production. I'd been going to people and saying, what do you, you know, what do you want? What's wrong in your life and what do you want and how can we fix it? So I was just kind of doing it in that way. But it was only when I started to actually research the process and almost... I felt I just had this big set of data from lots of focus groups from people and it was so diverse, the kind of problems they were trying to solve and it was just this huge mess. And I just had to really go back to people like Ostrom to help me organize my thoughts, I think. What was it like leaving your discipline behind and reading her writing? Because that's one of the things that always fascinates me is when I leave sociology, when I leave geography and read something that's coming from another place, you can tell that it's coming from another place. So, so I'm curious what the experience was actually like just picking up the text. I mean, not pleasant, Kyle. <laughs> I mean, when you read a lot of this work and, and, and the other work, it, it's very much, it feels quite methodical. It feels quite dry and it feels very unfluid so it seems counter as I say to those conversations with, with actually people in the community that you're having but equally I think it's important to engage with it because otherwise your work is just anecdotal and you you're not pinning it around these different structures that people have already thought about one of the things we haven't done yet is actually talk about your work and your research and your time in the field. So could you introduce us to a project where you draw on our ideas and then we could talk a little bit more about how that influence played out? Yeah, sure. Um, so one project I was involved in, I was researching the co-production process. It was a five-year project. Um, the funding came from the lottery. And so the idea was that we had to reduce social isolation for older people. And the project, how it worked, was there was a lead organisation and they went out there, they found older people from different communities and they actually said, you know, we've got this money to reduce social isolation, what do you think? And the community said, mm, I think that's really negative. We want to talk about making it an age-friendly place. So they changed the slant of it from very early on. And then how it worked in practice was that each area had a budget over four years and older people would work with professionals to develop a range of different projects to reduce social isolation. One of the things that I really like about this idea of co-production and it's a little bit of a tangent, but you can really see that the interplay between theory and methods where often I think there's this artificial divide where 
in your training, you take the theory class and then you take the methods class and they're just seen as these separate and removed things, but they have such a dramatic influence on each other, right? How you theorize the world, how you theorize power is going to influence how you actually go and do the research and co-production really exists in that space in between. So that's kind of a long way of getting my question, but what was actually influenced? So you got this big project you're working on, you've got the topic and the goal, how did Ostrom's ideas play out as you're managing this part of the process? Yeah, so I suppose I was quite idealistic and I was really interested in collective decision making and devolving power, but I had the suspicion that we were going to manipulate the community and, and it wasn't going to be this transformative experience. And ironically, what I actually found is that when we have the aim of empowering communities, it is really crucial that you have a professional managing it. So although this is top down, it has to be managed to make sure that the community actors involved are actually representative of their wider populations. So this is particularly important when we're thinking that the funding for these projects in the UK certainly often comes from the lottery. And we know that people who play the lottery, uh, it's more popular in more deprived areas. So we really need to make sure that this money is redistributed back to those neighbourhoods and doesn't just go to the most vocal. So the first group that you get through the door, you put the call out saying, hello, do you want to come and work with us on some projects? And the first group you get through the door are the problem. They are not the answer. They're often white. They've often had professional experience. They can see it as an opportunity. And they're in the networks to hear about it in the first place. So they came through the door with an agenda that they wanted to use the researcher just to amplify what ideas they already had. Exactly. And it was even that they would come with ready-made projects that hadn't been funded elsewhere. That's how used they were to the system, so to speak. So I actually started to use the focus groups as a way of actually shifting some of the thinking around this. Um, so to give you an example, we had one really uncomfortable conversation. It was almost an argument. And... One white woman, I was asking them about the projects and who they were engaging with. And and a white woman said, oh, well, you know, we've tried, but the Asian population, they won't engage. And another participant actually jumped in and challenged her and said, well, you know, you've just lumped together Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Kashmiri um, populations there. You know, you don't know why a lot of the estates are single cultures. You know, we need to educate ourselves. And and this was a really, uh, at the time, it it was very uncomfortable. Um, But actually then, as a result, that that woman, she then joined a table of Pakistani men at a recent social event. And she actually went on to develop a project proposal involving Pakistani community. And then later on in the project, white British groups were sort of complaining that they they thought their ethnic minorities were were getting an unfair proportion of, of the money. And she actually challenged them. So I suppose, really, I felt that The focus group allowed us to promote greater cultural awareness, challenge cultural stereotyping. And although this is an isolated incident, it did lead to behaviour change. And so this started to get a wider engagement with the wider community. So you've given this really fascinating example of how the focus group can serve as an intervention in itself, right? You've had people change their mind about certain political issues or understanding of who the community is, and you've had people take a step from learning to actually intervening with others. But I'm also wondering if you have an example of drawing on this model of co-production of something that that community came up with 
that you did not expect or would not have happened if you didn't have this lengthy five-year engagement with the community, right? Because this whole thing is about how to battle social isolation. But what did they actually come up with? Really interesting and a real range of projects. So some were actually, one of the interesting things with co-production is that it's meant to be about changing power relationships and not tinkering with small scale problems. But actually this project, actually some of the quick wins were the most effective. So the examples of that is like, we need this curb to be lowered so we can get our wheelchairs over it. Or we need this boiler in the church hall to be fixed so that we can have a social group gathering here. So these relatively cheap, real things that were fast to implement, they were really effective. And then, you know, a group could meet there for a year sort of thing. And then the projects were just so creative. So and also the kind of different um, relationships and um, the kind of cross-sector relationships that were developed as a result of them. So one of them was a machine, which is almost, if you can imagine, it's like a skeleton and it's for people with multiple sclerosis. And it actually moves to enable the person to stand upright. And so they bought one of these and then they went to the council and the council could see that it was really useful for people. So they match funded it. And then another example was a group went to the GP Federation and the GP Federation was, sorry, doctors, that is, uh, and said, you know, there aren't any services in the area for older people. And the GPs were like, there are loads of services in the area. And and so they said, yeah, but look, listen to what everyone's saying. And so as a result of that, they realised... It's just that people don't know about these services. So they were working to work out how they could advertise these services more effectively. So that story is a really compelling example of the kind of positive results of this model of research. Earlier, you mentioned that there's potentially ugly repercussions from co-production, <laughs> or uh, maybe ugly isn't the right word, but the idea can be used across the political spectrum. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're looking um, at Ostrom, she actually really some founding neoliberal text she really um, rated them she was against centralized control she was skeptical about redistribution so very neoliberal you could say uh, quite you know libertarians um could could identify with her but then on the political left she was an environmentalist um she was a defender of indigenous cultures she wanted to move beyond markets and states and she was really interested in this idea of common pool resources and so that's how she can be harnessed by the left i suppose to give you the uk example uh, under the david cameron um, coalition government a largely conservative um, government um, we had this idea of the big society so it was this idea that communities would uh, would be would look at would sort out their own problems and really it could be seen as a way of rolling back the state and negating the role of the state and just leaving communities to sort themselves out. So you've got assets, you, you know, you can mobilise yourselves. But we know that communities that are poor, they don't necessarily have those resources to be able to help themselves. Uh, and then in another another side, when, I mean, Ostrom did a lot of work on, on the police, um, which is really relevant. I know particularly in the US at the moment, we're talking about police reform. But an example of co-production gone wrong is the Neighbourhood Watch. And I'll, I'll give the example of so the Neighbourhood Watch. It's a partnership between law enforcement and the public. It's meant to prevent crime and disorder, um, long established. 
Um, but in the example of George Zimmerman um, shooting dead innocent Trayvon Martin, that's an example of someone thinking he's acting on behalf of public safety, but he didn't check in with the public to see that we consented to this. Which goes, which, I mean, it's the most terrific example, but it goes directly to the experience that you had where, you know, the first people through that door, the loudest people, the people act the quickest, do not necessarily represent the larger community and the community members. I guess this goes to the importance of the role of the professional as well. The professional is the person who can make sure all community members have voices and are empowered to speak, which with the neighborhood watch, we know that doesn't happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I like to end the podcast by basically having you sell the idea to us. <laughs> so if you were telling, I guess, telling someone like me or telling a undergrad student or a grad student or one of your colleagues, hey, you know, you actually should pay attention to this work by Eleanor Ostrom or you should pay attention to the way that she conceptualized co-production. You know, what would you tell them to convince them of the, of the value of, of spending time doing that? Yeah, so I think really co-production can see be seen to have emerged out of a tradition of community development work. Um, and community development work tended to focus on social class. So it could actually end up excluding people according to other protected um, characteristics. So I think co-production now, how it's configured at the moment, it, is that we're looking at how different social locations can intersect and create disempowerment, disadvantage, and, and how we can overcome them if we're really talking about changing power relationships. I think that's a, a perfect place to end. So thank you for introducing me to work that I was not aware of and appreciate hearing about your own research. Thank you so much, Kyle. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.